Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 336, The Jacobean Plantations of Ireland. Now that everyone, it is time the time has come to introduce you to a character called Arthur Chichester. As I was reading up about our art, one historian discussed how he was up there in the pantheon of the most hated figures in Irish history. Almost all of those figures, of course, for obvious reasons, are English. I will have to explain why Chichester makes it into said pantheon, although I might leaven the bread of his reputation just a wee bit. Today, gentle listeners, therefore, we are going to talk about James and his policy in Ireland and the impact of said policy and governance upon the Irish. Arthur Chichester, then, was a military man and a Devonian, born in 1563. He became a career soldier in the wars against Spain, rising to become a captain of the Marines. He was part of Francis Drake's last voyage, where he excelled himself, and he was given a command in northern France in 1597. So far, so good. But then in 1598, the trouble starts with the Nine Years' War against Hugh O'Neill, Earl of Tyrone. Obviously, Mountjoy, the commander of the English forces in that conflict, was on the lookout for experienced and capable military men. Though, after Tyrone's victory at Yellow Ford, Fighting in Ireland looked like a risky business. But Arthur had a personal interest in joining Mountjoy. His brother, John Chichester, had been a governor of Carrickfergus in Ireland and had been killed in the fighting, and his head used as a football in Tyrone's camp, which he considered rude. 
As you may remember, the Nine Years' War came at the end of Elizabethan rule in Ireland, a period described by one historian as the Age of Atrocities. We went through some of those atrocities, and you may also remember that both Mountjoy and Tyrone used the policy of scorched earth during the wars in Ulster to slow each other down in particular, never mind the local people. Chichester seems to have taken particular grim satisfaction with the effectiveness of this policy, though. He carried out one particularly merciless raid across Loch Ney and infamously said of the scorched earth policy, A million swords will not do them so much harm as one winter's famine. Hence Chichester's presence in the Pantheon. I tell you all this not to specifically besmirch Chichester's name. I tell you because we have an editorial policy of covering the good, the bad, and also not shying away from the ugly here at the History of England, but mainly because it gives some context when I tell you that Arthur Chichester was made Lord Deputy of Ireland in 1605 after the end of the war and would continue in that role all the way through to 1616. Chichester also commits other crimes in the minds of Catholics, which we'll come to, but I do want to leaven the bread of Chichester's understandably flattish reputation, shall we say, to allow it to rise just a little. Chichester was not a stupid man nor an unthinking one incapable of changing his views. In the minds of some historians, his career might be seen in two parts, the military and without doubt blood-soaked first half and the second half after becoming governor. Not that in 21st century terms he will appear to be in any way saint-like, but his focus and attitudes changed to a degree. For example, he wrote to Salisbury in 1610, acknowledging that he had been amongst the wasters and destroyers, but was trying now to earn his place in the ranks of the builders and planters. Chichester was, however, deeply anti-Catholic. In this, of course, he was entirely unexceptional in Protestant England, Wales and Scotland. His primary objection, though, was political rather than theological. He firmly believed that you could not combine religious loyalty to Catholicism with a secular loyalty to a Protestant king. For this reason, he would make life hard for recusant Catholics. And of course, most Old English and Gaelic Irish were firmly and determinedly recusant Catholic. And however he might want to become a builder and a planter, he could also be brutal. On one occasion, for example, he persuaded an old English Catholic to walk with him to the Protestant church, but when the man, Barnwell, refused to actually go into the church, Chichester hit him over the head and dragged him inside. However, Chichester seems to have been relatively free of the attitudes that affected so many of his English and Lowland Scottish compatriots, the view of the Gaelic Irish as a savage and barbarous race. The language is pretty horrific to the modern ear, and of course, though such attitudes were endemic across cultures and countries, worldwide and certainly Europe-wide, that doesn't make them any easier to deal with. I guess we have dealt with this before, but just to make you crystal clear that it's not getting any better. The way of life, traditions and culture of the Irish appeared to the English and Lowland Scots' eyes to be chaotic and barbaric. The agriculture, relying much more on... Uh, pasture and cattle rearing, with arable cultivation just going on in strips and small fields, seemed to the English, mistakenly, to leave much of the land empty and unexploited, and they put that down to laziness or worse. 
They saw Irish chieftains as tyrannical and in their use of gallow glasses and constant cattle raiding as part of a violent society, which, to be fair, is a little understandable from their point of view. The English saw the system of landholding by the clan to be perplexing and chaotic and very different to their own experience. The mysticism of aspects of culture and the bardic tradition to them marked the Irish as practically pagan. And then, of course, there was the stubborn love of Catholicism to boot. In summary, many from the king down saw the Gaelic Irish as savages who had failed to progress, to farm for their food or live in an ordered polity regulated by law. I am honour bound to give you a quote. So here's one from a tract in 1615 describing the Irish as more barbarous and more brutish in their costumes and demeanours than in any part of the world that is known. Chichester, however, to give him his due, does not appear to have viewed the Irish in this way. His concern was about religion and obedience. But many did, among them Kim James himself. There are clear parallels here with long-standing lowland Scottish attitudes towards Gallic Highlanders. The 14th century lowland Scottish chronicler John Forden, for example, described Highlanders as a savage and untamed nation, rude and independent, and exceedingly cruel. James himself had tried to enforce plantations of lowlanders on the Isle of Lewis, and in 1609 he would impose the Statute of Iona on the Highland chiefs, an attempt to bring what was termed civility to the Highlanders and Islanders. There is here, by the way, not only parallels between English and Scottish lowland attitudes, but parallels to the attitudes with which the English will face the Native Americans. It's been pointed out by cleverer people than me that Ireland might be considered the first of England's colonial ventures. I feel I am treading on old ground again, and sorry if this is so, but you know, it's pretty crucial stuff. This, then, was the new British policy, because it was now a British policy under James. Everyone used the word civility, the native Irish were to be made more like us, said the English and Lowland Scots. They are to be civilised and anglicised. Ireland was, in sense, a frontier region, so it must be brought within the wider whole of the state. We've already seen how Elizabethan policy had been, in their view, to make Ireland English, impose English laws, limit the thuggery and tyrannical power of the clan chiefs, feuding and raiding to be replaced by order, the rule of law, to create a society that channelled labour into productiveness rather than into destruction. For James and most others, the attitude was therefore not one of understanding and respecting Irish culture and way of life, it was to replace it with one that the British understood. This was, to the official mind, not a war of conquest. It was simply targeting unnatural and barbarous rebels that needed to be rooted out. Francis Bacon was one of those whose view, while supportive of his kings, was much gentler in tone, therefore. The Irish should be treated even-handedly and impartially, as if they were one nation within James's domains. The Irish responded to all of this in flexible and various ways, one historian has commented that modern laments that the native Irish chiefs did not unite against the English enemy rather presupposes that
that unity was what the Irish lords were looking for. In general, it was not, although the seeds of nationalism seemed to be appearing by the end of Elizabeth's reign. But many Irish lords saw even O'Neill's claim to be fighting for Ireland's as bogus and more about O'Neill. Often they tried to adapt, and often they were confused about who was the enemy. Mountjoy remarked upon finding, in one rebel's house, paintings of both Elizabeth and Philip of Spain. As far as the old English were concerned in particular, they were looking for the preservation of their status and traditions under the king. But as we'll see, every time they sought representation by Parliament or by the king, they were stymied, until eventually there would appear to be no way out. For the likes of Chichester and James, religion was one of the keys to making the Irish part of one British nation. This must be done by a mixture of coercion and persuasion, stick and carrot. The stick side is what tends to be focused on as regards Chichester. There was no recusancy law in Ireland, unlike in England, so in 1606, Chichester found an alternative by issuing mandates in the king's name, using the king's prerogative rights to require everyone to attend Protestant services within the Pale, and he later extended that to Munster and Galway. For a couple of years, until the policy was rescinded, thousands of Catholics were harassed and fined under these mandates. Catholics in particular responded then in a variety of different ways. Catholic priests were not happy with the idea of attending Protestant church to avoid trouble, church papism as it was called. Compromise was for them not an option and they tried to get parishioners to swear not to attend Protestant services at all. And many did comply and hoped in the end that James would just have to give way. On occasion, they asserted their rights to follow their religion in collective ways. In County Wexford, 200 of them turned up to the Protestant Church of Ireland and made such a noise outside that the sermon was drowned out and the service could not proceed. Or they might use passive resistance, such as, for example, a chief magistrate refusing to publish a proclamation banishing Catholic priests. Those in the worst position were, of course, the poor as ever. They couldn't afford fines, but were often dependent on Catholic landlords. So here's one example of rock and a hard place, fat and fire stuff. The Protestant governor in Munster forced a crowd of peasants to attend the Protestant church. Afterwards, the poor peasants' Catholic landlord threatened to cancel their tenances until they were reconciled with the church. So he made them go on pilgrimage, on foot, in white linen, to atone for their crimes against Catholicism. You have to feel for these poor souls. Devil, deep blue sea time. The thing is, though, that the mandating policy was cancelled. And there is a history of the government blowing hot and the government blowing cold and of changes in views between James and Chichester, particularly James alternating between a hard and soft line. Even Chichester, to a degree, suffered from it. So, an extreme case is the Catholic bishop Conqueror o Duodine, one of the Irish Catholic martyrs. In 1612, Chichester had him tried after he was caught confirming people in the faith packed the court jury and had him executed. He was 80 years old at the time. With him died Podrick O'Loughran. 
The crowd saw their brave deaths and pressed forward to take mementos away with them, and when he was buried and exhumed, they had him interred instead in St James's churchyard. On the other hand, Chichester sought to reinvigorate the Church of Ireland, providing ministers to improve the ability of the church to provide pastoral care. He recognised the central importance of Protestant texts in Gaelic and sponsored devotional texts and prayers specifically in Gaelic and promoted the Gaelic Bible. The New Testament had been available in Gaelic since 1602. There was some other progress as well. A convocation met and produced a set of 104 articles of Protestant faith specific to Ireland, but as it happens much more Calvinist and less open to interpretation than Cranmer's 39 articles in England. But the Church of Ireland showed little ability to evangelise. Livings were so poor it was difficult to recruit ministers and so many parishes were left empty. Often though in many areas, the evidence of persecution is actually rather difficult to find. Observance of the Catholic religion was fairly open. Marriages were performed by Catholic priests. Catholics were made JPs and sheriffs on a large scale. Two-thirds of the Limerick JPs were Catholic in 1620, for example. Catholic priests often lived in the houses of the gentry, saying Mass openly, and even being given the patronage of parsonages and vicarages. There remained a strong tradition of peripatetic Catholic primary schoolmasters. I'm not saying that these were sanctioned by the state, of course. They were part of a response by Catholics to keep their faith alive and burning in the darkness. But all I'm saying is that persecution is patchy and periodic and presents an oddly mixed picture. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Which brings us to the plantations of Ulster. As background, it's important to remember the impact of the flight of the earls in 1607 and O'Doherty's failed rebellion after that in 1608. Together, both of these allowed James to take the view that these were rebels and that their lands could therefore be confiscated to the crown, escheated, as the legal jarzen has it, and redistributed, as had often been the case, of course, with rebels against the crown in England throughout history. O'Doherty's rebellion is also particularly important because it greatly extended the amount of land that was identified as available for plantation. This is important, and here we need to bring in Chichester again, who is often quoted as a hardliner. The strategy and policy for the Ulster plantations was a matter of constant negotiation and differing opinions, with the King, the Privy Councils in Ireland and England, and with Chichester. After the flight of the earls, Chichester's view was that the plantation should be used to entice the local native population away from their traditional allegiance to Gaelic chiefs into this much-vaunted new civility and English way, and therefore that the native Irish populations should be a central part of the resettlement of the escheated lands. He wrote that land should be awarded so that 
every man of note or good desert, so much that he can conveniently stock and manure by himself and his tenants and followers, and so much more as by conjecture he shall be able to so stock and manure for five years to come. But Odohita's rebellion panicked everyone, and the plans that finally emerged horrified Chichester, who thought the expectations were way too high and that the treatment of the native Irish would spawn grievances, as, of course, they absolutely would. In Wexford, therefore, where new plantations were organised, he followed his original plan of allocating land to native Irish. Not that the plantations in Wexford were a success either. The old English and native Irish were outraged that the approach used for existing landowners to give up land in return for new title from the Crown was much abused, and they often saw their land holdings reduced. But the point I'm clumsily making here is that at the heart of Chichester's view was the concept of inducement to the native Irish and indeed the old English. Look, he was saying, we'll offer you order and structure through the reorganisation of government. English law will give you new rights and protect you from the tyranny of your existing lords. New methods of agriculture and the establishment of towns will build wealth and will make sure that you have secure title to land. Now, I'm not saying this offer would have been a success either. There's no doubt that religion was an absolutely key difference from the eventual integration of England, Scotland and Wales into one British kingdom. But as things unfold, one of the rather extraordinary things about English and British rule in Ireland was the very limited extent of any positive offer and inducement to the native population. In both Wales and Scotland, whatever might be said of integration and whatever your view, existing elites were not to be replaced wholesale. There were benefits offered. There was nothing like the violence constantly involved in Ireland. And a union was therefore formed that has survived pretty harmoniously for over 300 years. Don't shout at me, it's true. This did not happen in Ireland. The result was a hideous process of multiple bloody conquests and violence from Tudor times through the 18th century and the establishment of a state that was never an effective representation of all its peoples. Anyway, onward with the detail of the plantations, everyone onward. What were the principles behind the idea that by bringing a mass of English and Scottish settlers into Ulster, that a new society would be formed in Ireland become a happy, successful and productive kingdom. The historian Tiger Henration and Nicholas Canny summarised it with five general ideas that lay behind it. There was firstly the traditional idea behind plantations since the 1550s that the colonies would be an example to everyone in Ireland of just how a society could work exemplary, you might say. Everyone would see how great it was and say, yeah, wow, let's give up thousands of years of history and do that now. To do this, crucially, the exemplary plantations must be composed of Protestant English and Lowland Scots only because they knew how to do it. Secondly, the plantation would create an urban network of towns and fortified dwellings which would both protect the plantations until the locals saw the light but also, crucially, deliver benefits through economic growth. There was then a realisation of the importance of religion and conversion to Protestantism, 
And so the state church also needed strong economic and structural foundations so that it could make the Reformation fly at last. The architects then looked at history, and the experience of the previous Munster plantation suggested that scattering colonies over a wide area among a native population, which still outnumbered them, and where local lords retained their traditional influence, was just a bad idea with a capital B. So, where natives did get estates in the plantation, they would be forced into designated areas where they could therefore be controlled. And finally, the plantation would allow for the compensation of blameless natives who had been forced off their land. This was based on the fundamental misunderstanding of Irish subsistence agriculture, which suggested that plenty of vacant or underutilised land was available for them. I've got that right. That is five, isn't it? But I'm going to add another one or just make an additional point, whatever. As far as James was concerned, this was absolutely a British project. And part of that was about security of his three kingdoms and one principality. There is the one that everyone was concerned about, of course, and talks about, that Catholic Ireland was the back door if you wanted to conquer England. But I mean it also in the sense that James was looking differently now at England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland. In his mind, as we have heard, this should all be one place anyway. And he was a little miffed that he couldn't get Parliament to agree with him. Nonetheless, that's how he viewed it. And an integrated state doesn't have frontiers and boundaries within it. If it does, it will never be secure and successful. Thomas Cromwell clearly understood that in 1542 when he deleted the Welsh marcher lordships as part of integrating Wales into one kingdom. The reason for establishing the English language as a standard was not to delete other languages, which continued to be supported by, for example, the state production of Welsh and Gaelic religious material, but to make sure that there was also a standard language that could be used to communicate across the different types of people. James understood that internal frontiers was his problem with the Highlands and Islands, which was one of his failures, because they did not share lowland law, society and attitudes. He understood it with regards to the English and Scottish borders, which was one of his signal successes. This was what was going on in Ireland for James. Ireland looked like a frontier, the survival of different laws, landholding, lordship there. He was pushing forward the kind of initiative that was going on in many states of, in Europe, Spain and France in particular, often with violence every bit as horrible as occurs in Ireland. So this was the scheme for Ulster then. There were three groups who would get land in Ulster. Firstly, the undertakers, which is an oddly inappropriate word in a modern sense. They were all to be English and Scottish, all were required to take the oath of supremacy to attest to their Protestantism. They would make their property defensible, recruit and deploy only Scottish and English to replace the existing tenants, and the tenants that they settled were not themselves allowed to accept Irish tenants. There was a second group of landholders called servitors, who were mainly English, and were encouraged to settle English and Scots tenants, but were not required to. They could take Irish tenants if they wished. And there was a third group of settlers, the native Irish. The Irish who qualified would be deserving, so not a rebel essentially, and they could have native tenants too, 
but they had to practice tillage and husbandry after the English and Lowland Scots fashion. James was enthusiastic about the scheme. He reckoned it would produce a mixed conversation of different nations, one amongst another, to help induce obedience, civility and Christian policy into those part, to the welfare and tranquillity of the whole realm. So he was confident that plantations would deliver peace, truth, light and small fairy animals into the world and that all the pineapples would be smooth-ended. The road to hell and all that. Here are some figures then, everyone. Are you ready with pen and with paper? English and Scots undertakers and servitors received about 217,000 acres. Irish received 94,000 acres. The London companies received 45,000 acres. London was very important in this process, by the way. It was all going to be very expensive to do all this undertaking and settling and their money was crucial to its success. The government wanted them to rebuild the towns of Derry and Coleraine to create more trade and more wealth. So they were allocated the entire county of Coleraine and parts of Tyrone and Antrim to create a new county called Londonderry, and a contentious name was duly born. And then 74,000 acres went to the church to foster its potential to spread the Protestant word, and 12,400 to Trinity College, Dublin. This causes me to break off and digress, I am sorry to say, but it will be brief. Because I realise to my horror that I have not covered the establishment of Ireland's oldest university, Trinity College, Dublin, which is a crime, obviously, not just because it's one of Europe's elite universities, but also because it's a lovely place to visit. I mean, Dublin's a lovely place to visit with loads of places in which to mooch. And it's true... Guinness does taste quite decent there as opposed to the stuff served over here. But the Trinity Library, amongst other things, is amazing, absolutely wonderful to see. So, a group of Dubliners got together and in 1592 managed to get letters patent and provided initial endowments from the dissolution of the Augustine Monastery to set the college up outside the walls of the city. It was based on the Oxford and Cambridge model, so the University of Dublin expected to have more colleges than Trinity, but that never happened. The university's founders were determined to strengthen Ireland's integration into the mainstream of European learning. It was also overtly designed to be a Protestant college, anti-Catholic and anti-Gaelic, teaching a classical curriculum and preparing ministers for the Church of Ireland. It is part, in a sense, of the same process of establishing a mainstream education as part of the Reformation. So lay schools and grammar schools were being established after the dissolution of the monasteries in Ireland as well on an anglicised model. One contemporary reported on a school in Limerick where he saw 103 score scholars, most of them speaking good and perfect English. For that, they have used to construe the Latin into English. Catholic families that could afford it carried on their education and that of their children on their traditional model and the peripatetic schoolmasters that I've already mentioned. There was established a tradition amongst Catholics of leaving Ireland to complete a university education on the continent, notably Salamanca, I'm told, in Spain. The close links with Catholicism there strengthened the impact of the Counter-Reformation within Ireland 
when they duly returned. Anyway, back to the plantations then, now that I've scratched that particular itch. Progress of the plantations started rapidly enough, but then rather stalled, and progress was slower and much more chaotic than the king and his councillors had hoped. Many of the undertakers found that the costs involved way exceeded their expectations. Many therefore simply sold up immediately and went home once they hit problems. And in particular, the idea of excluding native Irish tenants from parts of the plantations was really never a flyer. There were simply not enough colonists. And so many native Irish tenants remained. Obviously, not particularly happily, often with a lower status than they'd previously held, with maybe less land, and harbouring fierce resentment at the injustice visited on them. A hostile Catholic underclass, resenting their Protestant head tenants. Nonetheless, the numbers were impressive. By 1622, the total adult population that had moved from Britain was around 12,000, over half of them Scottish. And meanwhile, there was a deal of informal movement going on from Scotland into Down and Antrim, areas not covered by the confiscations. Maybe in the long term, more significant than the official projects, in fact, by 1622, around 7,000 adult Scots. By 1630, the total number was probably around 37,000 immigrants, while there were also English that moved into Monster and Leinster to new plantations there. So, by 1641, it seems that about 100,000 British may have resettled in Ireland, whether part of official schemes or of informal migration, around 30,000 Scots and 70,000 English and Welsh. The colonising principle in Ireland has been described as a sort of testing ground for later colonisations in Canada and America. So it's interesting to reflect that these numbers far exceed the great migration of the 1630s, the 20,000 or so who migrated to New England. The plantations had the general impact of undermining the traditional leadership in Ireland of the old English as well as the native Irish and in general it would become clear that the attempt to anglicise the general population would not be a success. In 1600, most of the land was owned by Old English and Native Irish. By 1641, land ownership was split three roughly equal parts between Old English, Native Irish and New British settlers. However, there were many native lords in Ulster who did try to fit into the new world. Randall MacDonald is a good example. He was a major landowner in his own right, and he took the approach of trying to work with the new administration and with the plantations. He acquired a plantation of 4,500 acres, for example, and he peopled them with English and Scots, despite being Catholic. He made some effort to adapt to English social expectations and dress. He built imposing residences at Dunluce and Glenarm, just like any dyed-in-the-wool English or Scottish aristocrat. He became an alderman at Derry and established distinctly Scottish-style mills, roads, townships, bridges and so on on his estate. In the background, he continued to be staunchly Catholic and he continued to patronise Gaelic culture as well, so settling land on two Gaelic bards, for example. Nonetheless, he encouraged his legitimate and illegitimate children to marry into English, Scottish or Old English Catholic families in the Pale. 
he could be described as joining the kind of British aristocracy that James was trying hard to create across his three kingdoms. And it kind of worked. So Randall MacDonnell became a member of the Privy Council of Ireland and in 1620 he was made Earl of Antrim. Others tried a similar strategy, but in general most would find it very hard. And actually the costs involved in adopting an anglicised mantle, however superficially, would push many into increasing debt. There's no doubt that native Irish and particularly Old English continued to be increasingly alienated by James's policy in Ireland, not helped by Chichester's renewed burst of activity against recusants in 1612-13. Much of this resentment came to a head at the Irish Parliament, convened by James in 1613. Now James, by and large, didn't have much fun with parliaments in any of his kingdoms, actually, and it's not a big shock he tried to get by without having them as much as possible, as would prove to be his future strategy in Ireland too, but he needed this one. All those confiscations needed confirming, if nothing else. And then there's the money issue, root of all evil, as they say. Not only was James skint, and getting skinter by the year, but Ireland was part of that conveyor belt towards the ultimate level of skintdom. Between 1604 and 1619, the subsidy sent from England to Ireland was 47,000 quid on average a year. So, James was also looking for a subsidy from the Irish Parliament to help with the piggy bank issue. And meanwhile, he was keen to launch some new anti-Catholic laws to banish Jesuits and seminary priests, both of which groups James saw as essentially disloyal to the crown. He wanted laws to prevent Catholic Irish travelling abroad and to introduce English-style recusancy laws. The problem with that was that the Catholic Old English dominated the Irish Parliament, and they weren't going to like this. They weren't going to like this one little bit. So, James preempted the 19th century governor of Massachusetts, Eldridge Jerry, and decided to do some mandering. He created 84 new parliamentary seats, all cunningly located where they could be pretty sure they'd get Protestant MPs returned. Boroughs, Trinity College, as well as sharing out others across the regions. Now, there was a need for more seats, and there was a need for more equitable distribution. But this wasn't it. What it meant was that the old English could no longer hope to be able to block hostile legislation in Parliament. The old English fought back. The election was hotly contested, which really isn't normally the case in the early modern parliamentary selection process. But when Parliament met, James had achieved his ends. Protestants outnumbered Catholics by 132 to 100. Still, the Catholic members resisted, and you get this lovely bit of theatre. So there was the Catholic candidate for the position of Speaker, and he tried to take the Speaker's chair from the Protestant candidate, John Davis. He sat firmly in the chair and wouldn't move. So John Davis, not to be outdone, sat in his lap, and Davis had, by all accounts, been on the pies for some time. Parliamentary democracy is so dignified. Eventually, the Catholics just walked out and Parliament had to be prorogued without them. Outraged, 
the Catholics sent a delegation to England to see James. They had a whip round to get the cash together for the journey and interestingly many native Irish lords also contributed to that whip round despite the fact that the vast majority of Catholics in the Parliament were actually Old English, not Gaelic lords. So here's a worrying sign for James and his successors. The native Irish and the Old English were sinking their old differences in a joint solidarity against the plantations and against the Protestant Church of Ireland. James received the petition and he received the petitioners. They had let rip in their petition about the constant use of martial law, the extortions of soldiers, abuses in civil government, their lack of faith in redress coming from the legal system, the lack of knowledge of Gaelic among the common law judges, and there was more. And, of course, they objected to the recusancy legislation being proposed. Well, James listened to them, to be fair. He was a canny politician at times, and so he agreed to set up an inquiry, demonstrating that setting up an inquiry is a time-honoured approach for wayward governments to give themselves time or quietly shelve embarrassing cock-ups or kick ideas they don't like into the long grass, which is still in use today. However, apparently the petitioners then celebrated their apparent success far too raucously and joyously. Not quite sure how they did that. Possibly swinging on the chandeliers in the new banqueting house or trying to photocopy their bottoms on the king's throne a few centuries before photocopying had been invented. I don't know. But either way, it got out of hand and it got James's goat. So in 1614... He called them back and he gave them the traditional carpeting that Edwin Sands had got used to. He called them half-subjects, echoes of Henry VIII there. He denounced them as full of pride and arrogancy and he threw a few of them into the tower for a few days just to underline exactly how cross he really was. It was, however, bluster. James needed his cash and also to give him his due he knew when to back down. So he unwound at least some of his gerrymandering so that the Protestant majority was reduced to a margin of 108 to 102. And the recusancy laws were shelved as well. This did the trick. The business of the Parliament proceeded. A subsidy of £26,000 was voted. The sun came through from the clouds. Well, where does that leave us then? By the time that Chichester gave way to Oliver St. John in 1616 and Oliver St. John to Henry Carey in 1622 as Lord Deputy. In some ways, the optimistic observer of a sunny disposition, as Bertie would have it, could be well pleased with how things were going in Ireland. There appeared to be, on the surface at least, peace, stability and a distinct absence of rebellion and violence. Maybe the worst was over. It helped that economically things were going pretty well up to the 1630s at least. Although the Irish economy was still heavily subsistence-based, there was a sign of increasing sophistication and commercialisation and the export-led part of the economy was performing impressively, focusing on wool, timber, cattle and some fish exports, mainly to Britain, but also to France and Spain. In Munster, the fisheries trade was worth £29,000. There were signs of close trade links with the English South West. The number of towns and associated trade 
was very much invigorated by the plantations. Of the 117 municipal boroughs recorded in 1692, 80 of them were created after 1603. So, there were signs of vitality and growth in the economy and the population grew accordingly, from around 1 million to 1.4 million, part of which of course was due to the arrival of settlers, but much of which was organic growth as times and stability improved and in the absence of violence. So what that meant was that some of the new English in Ireland were fooled into thinking that the summit of the Elizabethan violence and rebellion had finally been conquered. And now to come was the easy descent into the green and pleasant downlands. John Davis, the bloke who'd sat on the speaker's lap, sat in his study writing happily, probably munching on some sort of pie as he did so, and he wrote that, Whereas the Irish and former times were left under the tyranny of their lords and chieftains, they were now free subjects to the King of England. For once the protection of the crown was a real benefit to the Irish. They sat on juries, their size circuits were established and operated. In England, Francis Bacon could tell the new Chief Justice of Ireland in 1617 that the country, which hath come in and been reclaimed from desolation and a desert to population and plantation, and from savage and barbarous custom to humanity and civility, in fact, of course, the Catholics of Ireland, both the Old English and Native Irish, harboured bitter resentment at their treatment. The reason for their relative quietism in the first half of the century were many and various. Some did turn to the new laws and processes to fight their claims through English law rather than through violence. For others, resistance simply seemed futile in the face of English military presence and they waited for better times. And some left Ireland to fight in the Thirty Years' War. Others reflected that the misfortunes they had suffered were maybe God's punishment for their sins, a theme often followed by Gaelic poets and bards, and that encouraged stoic resignation. The more observant of the English recognised that this sunny view of the Irish reaction to English rule was far from accurate. In a deeply anti-Catholic tract, Barnaby Rich writing from the pale, was convinced things wouldn't improve until the dominance of Catholicism had been addressed. John Carew, who became president of Munster, warned prophetically how the recent plantations had encouraged the native Irish and the old English to put behind them centuries of hatred and unite in opposition. And he predicted that the next rebellion, whensoever it shall happen, would threaten more danger to the state than any other that has preceded it, because the revolt is likely to be general. Golly and Bayek, get hold of that bloke's crystal ball and head down to the bookies and make yourself a fortune. Anywho, that's all for the moment, folks. Hi thee to the website where you will find a handy map of the plantations, although I have no doubt we will have cause to mention Ireland in the context of the next, the last and greatest of the Jacobean favourites. I speak of that gorgeous dresser, George Villiers, soon to be Duke of Buckingham. We shall welcome George onto the stage next week. Meanwhile, if you happen to be a member of the History of England, then first of all, my joyful and public thanks for supporting the podcast, 
and just to say I have produced a little game for you all. I am rather aware that for many of you the reign of James I and the Sixth is rather the lard between two slices of bread, sandwiched between the glories of Elizabethan England and the thrills of the civil wars. So, just to keep you dreaming of the civil wars, members, I have done a game, the right and revolting versus wrong but romantic identification game, where you get to look at 20 pictures of contemporaries of the civil wars and identify if you think they are cavaliers or if they are roundheads. As we all know, that's very simple because we know what they each look like. It's just a bit of fun to keep you in the mood. Head to the website, thehistoryofengland.co.uk. If you are not a member, then forgive me for urging you to join. Not because there's a fun game on the website, but because you will be supporting the History of England podcast, that's me, and keeping Dylan in the dry biscuits that pass as dog food these days, and because you'll get access to over 85 hours of members' podcasts with loads of topics, biographies, a history of Scotland, and so on and so forth. And it's as cheap as chips. Again, just hie thee to thehistoryofengland.co.uk and hit Become a Member to find out more. Right, that is definitively it for the moment. George Villiers and I will look forward to your company next time. Until then, good luck and have a great fortnight. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 